everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And this is a special cutting edge current event episode of Mormonish. Sometimes uh, we run across things in the news, on social media that we feel that we would like to address in a timely manner instead of, you know, waiting. So this is something that came to our attention. Landon actually brought it to my attention. Didn't you, Landon, earlier today? I did. Yeah, I found found this on Reddit and I was kind of disgusted And after I read okay. it and I sent it to you. <laughs> Woo, the tone is already set. Here we go. No, this, oh my gosh. No, this um, this was actually an, a devotional address given at BYU-Idaho. Again, we just barely did an episode on a devotional, not a devotional, but a graduation address at BYU-Idaho by Brad Wilcox. So what's up with Idaho, Landon? What's up with BYU-Idaho? It seems to be where everybody goes to make their weird uh, presentations. <laughs> I don't know, but you know what? It's okay, it gives us good content, I guess. So anyway, so this was a devotional that was given on Tuesday. That would be April 25th of 2023. And it was given by our church historian whose name is Elder Kyle S. McKay, and he uh, gave the devotional to the students. And what was so interesting about it, and of course you can weigh in on this, Landon, um, just the fact that he, he said things and he went places that I've always felt are sort of implied, but no one has really come out and said it from the pulpit. I was, I found myself listening to this. It's a short address. It's only about half an hour, less than half an hour, but I just couldn't believe statement after statement that I thought I've never heard anyone say that. I always assumed they thought that, <laughs> but I never heard them say it. What was your takeaway from it before we dive in? Yeah, it was basically the church historian telling you how to ignore church history. <laughs> What's the theme of the talk the way I saw it? That was it. Maybe that will be our title. We haven't chosen a title yet. So yeah, it was it was really fascinating. And of course, a lot of people were talking about it, buzzing about it today on social media. So we just thought we would cut out some clips that kind of represent the tone and the concept behind everything. And we'll just play some of the clips and we'll just kind of talk about it. So why don't we start with an introduction and how they introduce um, Elder Kyle S. McKay so we can get to know him. Okay, as usual, this stop starts out with the standard nepotism of the church. You've got the, uh, you know, Irene's president, Irene's uh, son, and you've got McKay. Uh, uh, the the church historian is actually the his father, grandfather was cousins with President McKay. So you've got all the standard names of the church being introduced here. Uh, so let's go ahead and roll that. Elder Kyle S. McKay was sustained as a General Authority 70 on March 31, 2018. At the time of his call, he had been serving as a member of the 5th Quorum of the 70 in the Utah North area. He is the church historian and recorder and executive director of the church history department. He also serves on the scripture committee. Elder McKay received a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from Brigham Young University in 1984. In 1987, he received a Juris Doctor degree from Brigham Young University. From 1987 to 2018, Elder McKay practiced law in Oregon and Utah. Elder McKay has served in a number of church callings including full-time missionary in the Japan Kobe Mission, Elders Quorum President, Ward Young Men President, High Counselor, Counselor in a Stake Presidency, and a Stake President. Well, there's his pedigree. That's awesome. And I have to point out, uh, maybe a lot of you already know, but his mission, he was either a companion or in the same district as um, RFM, Radio Free Mormon. So they are best buds, <laughs> which is kind of <laughs> unlikely and interesting. I know that RFM has had him on Mormonism Live before. So very interesting. So um, I found uh, his little pedigree there um, unusual. Well, what would you say was kind of unusual about that? Well, a uh, church historian, and he was an English major and a Jewish doctorate and studied law uh, in or, or practiced law in uh, Oregon and Utah for ever since he graduated from, from law school. So uh, has no teaching credentials uh, in history. 
no, no CES time, no uh, ancient scripture. Uh, he was on the church committee for scriptures, uh, yet uh, don't have any idea what his background is in scripture that would make him a scriptorian in any way. Uh, it's the standard church uh, way of of coming up in the in the church and and becoming a seventy or whatever is to practice law, and eventually you become a leader in the church and you become the church historian obviously eventually you become no the church historian. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the executive directory director of the church history department i think it said so but you know what that is standard like you said and, and i remember when he was called i actually looked it up and literally everyone in the last several decades has been a lawyer by trade an attorney by trade and then became a church historian. So, Everyone except Arrington, who they kicked out and fired. Uh, he was a historian, and they he was an actual historian, the only, <laughs> only historian they ever <laughs> ever hired for the position. <laughs> Seems a little suspicious, but it's okay. We'll just go on. All right. Yeah. So I think are we ready just to delve into? Um, he just kind of starts starts out and tells some amusing anecdotes. First of all, we would tell everybody watch this. It's, it's less than half an hour. We're just going to pull out some highlights um, that that represent some of the themes and concepts, but go ahead and watch it at some point. So he tells some anecdotes about his family, um, he makes some jokes about the kids, and then he kind of dives right into, I think, you know, to introduce what the actual topic is. Is your testimony of Jesus Christ and his restored gospel strengthened by but not dependent on others? Is your foundation sure and certain enough that you can remain unshaken, even if someone you admire in the faith makes a mistake now or in the future or in the past? Is your knowledge and testimony of truth strong enough that you can stare down compelling reasons to doubt and choose to believe? Have you learned the gospel, the principles of the gospel in such a way that you can do all this. Sorry, I'm muted again. I'm pulling a Mormonism live. There is one word there that absolutely stood out to me, and that is the word compelling. He actually said there are compelling reasons that support your doubts. <laughs> Did you catch that? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something that uh, I actually looked up the definition of compelling, and it means, you know, overwhelming evidence <laughs> for that fact. So he's basically saying, can you can you withstand the overwhelming evidence that uh, that might come your way to to boost your doubts? Because uh, he's saying there's a lot of it out there. Are you able to withstand that? Have you done the work to withstand that overwhelming evidence that's going to come your way? Are you able to withstand the evidence of these errors that other people have made in the past and maybe make in the in the present? Are you sturdy enough to withstand these things? He's, he's indicating it's there, guys, and you better be ready to stand against it uh, and be prepared. That is so funny because I also looked up the definition of compelling. We did this independently. This shows that we're so in tune to the, the Mormonish spirit here. But yeah, that was exactly what it was. It can't be refuted, powerful, overwhelming, can't be resistant or resisted or evident. That's exactly right. So he's saying there are things in the past, there are things that you're being uh, taught or shown now by other people that really are good reasons to look into things and to wonder if you're on the right path. But there's got to be a way that you can resist all that, no matter how compelling. So I just thought that was fascinating that he actually came out and said that. And, and he didn't say it's anti-Mormons that are going to be showing mm -hmm. it to you. He said it's people that you trust within the church that are going to be saying those things. And I'm not sure who he is he talking about, you know, members who might be leaving who are going to be showing it to you? Or is he even talking about the gospel topics essays where you might be finding stuff from prophets and leaders that you're going to say, ah, that's not that's not true. But I, I can't I can't uh, refute it. Uh, or or do I have how do I how do I argue that or how do I face that? Because we all know that we've seen things from Brigham Young and other prophets that 
we have been refuted by the church leaders themselves. And is that who he's talking about? Yeah. In fact, think about the conference talk just um, a few weeks ago where they said there's pretty much everything could and can and should be refuted from prior <laughs> leaders. You know, so maybe this is kind of hand in glove with that. I'm not sure. But but I, I kind of took it that they were exactly what you said, um, talking about things you might come across on your own online, um, on the church's own website that are confusing and disturbing to you, and also trusted friends and family members who might, you know, make some very valid points that you don't know how to deal with. So he's addressing it. He's going right at these kids. And I always think you no know, when they when they really get this direct, it means that there's a there's a problem and they recognize it and the only thing to do is to be that direct because it must tell you how many people are leaving and being influenced by this kind of compelling evidence. Well, I I think by some of the things he says a little bit later in the in the talk that he's actually talking about things that some of the past prophets and leaders have said, because he actually uh, kind of makes an indication that the leaders are human and that they've erred yeah. and that we shouldn't yeah. let human error lead us into apostasy or lead us into believing something that, uh, or let us lead us away from Christ and the gospel. So I think he may be referring to past prophets as well as uh people who are active in the church who you might trust who might bring something yeah. to you that that you don't believe now so yep i wonder what the kids reaction i keep calling them kids young adults sorry about that i wonder what their reaction is at this point they're probably like oh boy hold on to your seats <laughs> well let's go on and see some of the other things he's teaching here as you increase your efforts to increase your testimony you are likely to become confronted with reasons to doubt. President Nelson cautioned, quote, don't pollute your testimony with false philosophies of unbelieving men and women, close quote. Please hear me and understand, there will always be some reason or another to doubt the truthfulness of this church and gospel. There are arguments and evidence supporting the proposition that there is no God, that Jesus was just a good philosopher teacher, that Joseph Smith was simply a charismatic storyteller, and that this church and gospel are not true. This evidence, these arguments are on some level appealing and believable, for there are many who believe them. The existence of such evidence and arguments should neither surprise nor shake you. I invite you to read again 2 Nephi chapter 2. It must needs be that there is an opposition, or in other words, an opposite in all things. Why? Because the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. In short, agency. That is, our ability, our responsibility to choose for ourselves is essential in all things, including and beginning with belief. In order to preserve our agency in the matter of belief, there must be opposites from which to choose, reasons to believe and reasons to doubt. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm a little confused by that argument. I guess maybe that explains flat earthers, right? I mean, most people believe the world is round, yet there must be opposition in that because it can't be that simple. Facts and science and things that lead you to that conclusion, right? So we've got to have flat earthers. I mean, I'm being facetious, but it's a very interesting argument that there can't just be something that is so compelling that it's correct. There has to be another side to it or or something that how would you describe that land it's seriously that 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 section right there really leaves me a little confused well first off it's, it's a little confusing to me because the first thing he says is don't believe anybody who is uh, is outside the church uh right. just don't let them confuse you with their testimony you should only really believe one side but then he goes on to say well there really needs to be two sides but don't listen to the other side you, you should only listen to one side. So 
right away he's just dismissing one side as it's it's incorrect right. because they don't belong to the church. That's a right. It has to exist, but you're not supposed to choose it. There's a yin and a yang, but you better know which side you choose. Yeah. Even though it exists, thinking. it's not an option for you. Yeah, that's I think that makes it a little more clear to me. That's a very interesting philosophy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And but then he goes on and and the the whole argument that that it's agency, it, it's kind of the, uh, he's kind of going back to the Adam and Eve theory in the in the temple mm -hmm. that we get, that there had to be a choice in order for you to choose. And so he wants you to think, oh, well, there's only, there's really only one choice here, you know, but God had to give it, God had to make it so that you really had a choice. It's not really a test if there's only one side. So he allows, he allowed there to be this other side that it may there's a lot of compelling evidence for it as i as he said earlier and he it's said believable too and, he said and there anyone are reasons. With, yes it's very reasonable <laughs> but yes. he had to make it reasonable so that so that it would be tempting to you just like the apple was to eve or the fruit was to eve he had to make it tempting to you so that you would fall for it but you don't need to fall for it because there's only one way to choose and so he, he's he's making it that same argument of, as Adam and Eve that there there had to be a choice, and that's why there's there's a compelling evidence against it, so that you had to make agency part of it. But as members of the church, we all know how we're supposed to choose. the The other stuff is just believable enough to make the choice difficult, but those who are righteous will make the right choice in the end. It's yeah, really manipulative. Yeah, I was going to say manipulative, and that's a false agency, because it's almost like you're in a laboratory or a petri dish. It's it's not a real agency at all when those are the choices presented to you. And it's almost a sifting of the wheat and the tares, right? It's there because a lot of you will fall for this, but some of you won't. And those are the ones, right? So you feel really special that you're the one that didn't fall for it. So I don't know. It's it's a strange way to look at things, but I, I guess it works in the situation. I, I don't think I've ever heard this argument before. This is kind of a new I never have either. to me for yep. uh, the reason that there's so many problems in the church history is so that you have to make a choice as to whether you believe the history or not, or whether you exercise faith in God. Uh, you have to believe in God despite the evidence that you're seeing that says it's not true the fact that you believe regardless of the evidence and the, the fact that you're willing to believe in the church and choose the church over the evidence puts you above everybody else. And that's what God is looking for is that you will exercise faith and believe regardless of the evidence. That's a new, a, a whole new uh, concept that I haven't heard before. Well, and I think it's because a lot of people, I even had this conversation at a brunch on Sunday um, we were talking about, you know, afterlife. And I said, you know what, if there is a God and I'm up there and I'm sitting there being judged by Joseph Smith, well, that doesn't matter. You know, I can just say, really guys, come on. <laughs> but if I'm being judged by the rest, I will say to God, look, you gave me a brain. What did you think I was going to do? You know, with all the craziness and all the compelling evidence, you gave me a brain for a reason. What do you think I was going to do? And I always thought that was a pretty good workaround. You know, he let me pass by because of that. But this takes that all away. Yep. You were not supposed to use your brain. You were supposed to put your brain on, you know, on hold and just go with it and ignore all of that. So it's an interesting idea. And and, and I thought when, when I heard it, I'm like, well, how could God hold you accountable for using your brain when he gave you this evidence. And like he said, it's very compelling evidence. So God's going to punish you for fooling you. He gave you all this compelling evidence. And because you fell for the compelling That's evidence, uh, you, you're going to burn in hell forever. What kind of yep. just that, that takes away the justness of God. He's not just if he fooled you and, and got away with it. Um, but they have an explanation for that. He has an explanation for that a little bit later in, in the uh, talk. Yep. And I just have to think about any parent. I mean, that's to be crass, a dick move. Honestly, <laughs> you don't trick your children like that. You don't manipulate them that way. It's just not what you do as a parent. If people think God is, is a loving parent. So yeah, very confusing, but also compelling scenario because I've never heard it before. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, let's uh, 
Go to his next idea. God does not give us doubts, nor is he the author of error, but he allows them because it is absolutely critical that you and I choose for ourselves to believe or not to believe. There will never come a time, at least premillennium, when God removes all reason to doubt. For to do so would be to remove all agency in the matter of belief. And he will never do that. Now, I want to be clear. By acknowledging the existence of reasons to doubt, I am not legitimizing them. And I am certainly not advocating or excusing doubt itself. Jesus said, doubt not. In the face of reasons to doubt, doubt not. And what, did you think Satan would throw up flimsy, easily dismissible reasons to doubt? No, they will be flattering and enticing. If the prince of darkness can transform himself into an angel of light, then surely he can put forth ideas and arguments that appear enlightened. There you have it. He had his, he has an answer for you. It God doesn't God doesn't cause doubt. God didn't cause these problems, but he allows them. <laughs> and he allows them through Satan. It's Satan that causes all of these compelling arguments. He's so intelligent that he can cause uh, an argument that is uh so overwhelmingly convincing that you're going to fall for it despite the fact that God can't provide any answers to these questions. But the fact that Satan can, can bring these questions to you and can provide evidence to support them, but God can't answer them. But if you fall for them, God's going to now punish you because he didn't take away your agency. It doesn't seem like agency if only one side is provable and the other side is not, that how is that agency? It, it doesn't seem like agency if you if you can't answer the question uh, that's being raised by the other side <laughs> to me. Well, and this makes my brain hurt, literally, <laughs> this kind of logic. But I also got the impression how he said, you know, Satan is so smart. And, and it makes you think that the more logical and compelling the argument, the harder he's working against you, right? And maybe the smarter you are, because you need the absolute hardest argument that you have to, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, you say the sky is blue and someone says, no, it's red. And you say, no, it's blue. And then you think to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, this seems really obvious. So I think I'm being tricked. So I'm going to, yes, it's red. I mean, it's, it's just a circular pattern of logic that can make people double think and I think think it would lead to scrupulosity. I just, it's, it's an unhealthy thought pattern, I believe, to make you feel that Satan is working against you harder than anyone else because you are having doubts. And, and he, he said, I don't excuse uh, the doubt. Uh, just yeah. because I recognize that there's tough questions, I don't yeah. excuse the doubt. You don't, there's no reason for you to doubt, even though there's really good arguments uh, against this that should not cause you to doubt because Jesus said, don't doubt. So you get this, you, you, you get this idea brought to your attention, or you get this historical fact brought to your attention that is completely the opposite of what you've been taught all of your life. And you go, what? That's not what I learned, but you're not supposed to doubt. You're just supposed to say, Oh, never mind. Oh, that doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't cause me a problem. I, I just move on and I'm not supposed to doubt. What what kind of human does that? That's not even a human being that that is right. presented with evidence contrary to what they've learned, who doesn't then begin to question what they've learned. And that's the problem that people are having in the church today is the evidence they're seeing is not what they've been taught. And that's what's causing the, the confusion that's what's causing them to start to doubt, and that's what's causing them to start to doubt what they've been taught and to doubt the leadership that has been teaching them this information. So to just simply say, Jesus said, don't doubt, therefore, when you're presented with something that causes confusion, you just 
need to ignore it. Right. That's just that's just bad teaching all around from whoever. Well, and it's not healthy. No, that's what I'm worried yes. about. Like you said, a human being is not hardwired that way. You take in information, you process it, you learn, you grow, you change opinions. You're constantly shifting. And that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're a living, breathing, thinking being, and that is what you're supposed to be doing. And this takes that completely out of the equation. You're supposed to shut down. It's like that old statement when the prophet has spoken, the thinking is over or something. I'm, I'm sure I'm not quoting it quite right, but most human beings can't do that without a lot of cognitive dissonance and a lot of mental distress that can lead to depression, all kinds of different things. You're just shutting down people's innate, you know, just who they are. And so I really object to that. I think this is a very harmful way of thinking for everybody. Well, we we just went to Stephen Hassan uh, at mm -hmm. a Thrive event in the last yeah. month, and he went over, uh, you know, the bite model and the different, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cult type characteristics of an organization and we're seeing them all over this talk this talk is just all filled with them you know don't ask questions don't question authority uh you know don't think for yourself follow the the, the teachings that are taught to you don't go to outside sources all of these things are being reinforced over and over in this talk and and it's a it's a very damaging talk to anyone who's who wants to seek the truth. This is not how you seek the truth. Mm -mm. This is how you are brainwashed by just following unquestioningly whatever is told you, regardless of what the evidence says. And he's basically saying that D despite the the overwhelming evidence, <laughs> you need to follow the church. And then he's going to go on in his talk, and he's going to tell you. How to ignore the overwhelming evidence yep. and make sure that you stay faithful in the church. And he's going to tell us how to do that. And, and so that's kind of where his talk is headed here. Yep. And it's a tactic to find common ground. So he says, I know there are compelling reasons. There are problems. There's evidence. That's common ground because I guarantee a lot of people in the audience feel that way. Yeah, I felt that. I, you know, I'm not sure. So he found the common ground. And then he gives you the answer, you know, shut it down, forget it. It's okay. And so some people in the audience will go, okay, I know what to, I know what to do now, I think. But again, so unhealthy, very yep. disturbing. I've been there now. Tell me the answer. And he's about <laughs> to do that. Yep. <laughs> Another of Satan's strategies is to use human error to disprove or diminish God's truth. Brace yourself. It is possible, even likely, that you have said or done something that has become someone else's reason to doubt. We sometimes have an unrealistic expectation that God must somehow search out or raise up errorless people to do his work and lead his church. You're familiar with a statement made in 1890 by Wilford Woodruff. He said, quote, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place, close quote. What does that statement mean to you? Unfortunately, some have interpreted or distorted it to mean that the Lord will never allow church leaders to make a mistake. That is simply not the case. It has never been the case. The scriptures repeatedly show that God does his work through humans, and those humans make mistakes, sometimes even while God is using them for his purposes. There we go. We're back to, oh, don't don't blame the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, we're, we're to the error of prophets that they can make mistakes. Uh, and notice how he starts out. You've probably made a mistake and you've probably led someone astray. So you're just as guilty. You're no more perfect than any of the prophets. So let's set this. Let's set it up straight right away. You're not perfect either. How can you expect the prophets to be uh, to, to to be perfect? Uh, so he's starting right down the the path of, well, no one is perfect, and God never expected anyone to be perfect uh, when when he set up his his path.
Yep. And, and again, with the common ground, you probably all know there are problems with past prophets. I mean, those weren't his exact words, but that's what he's alluding to. And people in the audience are probably like, yeah, I think I might have heard some things. And then he goes into it. Well, you can't expect anyone to be perfect. I love that uh, Wilfred um, Woodruff quote, because when I was growing up, to me, uh, that meant, and this is what we learned, that a prophet would literally be struck dead if he was leading us astray. Of course, then everyone wondered what did Howard W. Hunter do? <laughs> no one knew because, you know, he was only in for like eight months. But... <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> well, but they, yeah, they it, all ended up dead, so they all must have done something, right? <laughs> right. But doesn't that say that when you have these prophets that are in their 110th year, you know, they're doing good and they're where they're supposed to be and they're not making mistakes because they're still here. When the prophet speaks, the thinking is over. So all's safe and happy and good in Zion. And that's a comforting thought to people that are confused by other things that they're hearing or starting to think for themselves. So yeah, it's very well, interesting. He, he's definitely setting the groundwork here for uh, that, that prophets make mistakes. Yes. And therefore, when you find mistakes that prophets have made, it's okay. You don't need to lose your testimony. Humans make errors and it's okay. Don't lose your faith over it. It's always been in God's plan for humans to make errors. And he's setting that up right now. I think that's not a new argument. We've been seeing that mm -hmm. in the last decade from the church that they're starting to do that. And there's a reason for that because there's so many of the prophets that were completely flawed individuals. And yeah. so they, people are seeing that and they're having to set the stage for that. And he goes on in some of the, he goes on further in the talk and, and sets that a little bit more. So um, let's share some of, uh, some of that. If the truthfulness of this church or the truthfulness of your beliefs were judged by your errors, would anyone ever believe what you believe? Would there have been fewer mistakes, fewer messes, if God had only restored his church and gospel through you? So what do we do with error? You can't hide or hide from the humanness of humans. But it is equally unproductive to seek out error and wallow in it by making it an emphasis of study. You will never come to know and understand the truths of God by studying the errors of man. Nor has God appointed you or me or anyone to be an ongoing arbiter of error in his leaders, scrutinizing every word or act of apostles and prophets to make sure they fit within our current understanding of correctness. That is not his plan. That is not his order. This one just makes me mad. <laughs> oh, uh oh, Lando's getting mad. Yeah. Hurry, take a drink. Calm down. That's right. <laughs> well, okay. I I agree that, uh, you know, we're, we shouldn't be judging. However, he's making it sound like these men are equal to every one of us. And they're not. Right. These are, you know, first of all, Joseph Smith is the millennial head of the gospel. You know, the thousand year... He's supposed to be the top person of all mankind of this thousand-year millennial. And look at the man. <laughs> he, he says, could I have done any better? Would He asked that question. Would you have done any right. better? Well, I can tell you that when I was going to church, I was not performing pedophilia on 14-year-old girls. I was not marrying going everybody there. else's wives <laughs> i was not inviting women right. into the from the church into and and telling them that they were supposed to marry me while i was sending their husbands off on yeah. missions i was not performing bank fraud i was not committing treason against my the government. list is long <laughs> the list is long and goes on and on and on right. and i think right. that when a man proclaims himself to be uh, the spokesman of God, that reasonable people have a reasonable responsibility to look at the character of the individual and ask themselves, does this man meet that requirement? 
because thousands of men have set themselves out as spokesmen for God. Right. And you can't so believe many. every single one of them. You have right. a responsibility to find out if that man really speaks for God. And the way you do it is you have to put some level of question into it and say, <laughs> does this man meet some of the requirements that I think a man speaking for God would would do? And right, that but... would probably be not having being a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> wow, ranty Landon tonight. <laughs> no, but you know, he did say that, that of course, God works through flawed individuals. Which, you know, poor God, I feel sorry for him. Why does he have to work through all these flawed pits? There are plenty of other people that might do the job. I don't know. Um, but yeah, again, it's throwing the blame on, you know, people that are imperfect. My take on that, however, is that a lot of us based our lives and our life decisions on imperfect counsel and imperfect things that were said. And it impacted. It's not just a flaw in a vacuum. It's a flaw that impacted thousands of people over time. And they based their decisions and lived their lives based on things. I mean, think about how we, re we revered Mormon doctrine, right, as an inspired work. And some of the things in there are just horrifying yet people treated other people based on things they read in there and you know like i said life decisions based on these uh flaws flawed doctrine flaws so i don't know but and, but he's bringing if you're it making, to light if, if you're making life decisions based on these pronouncements you very much should be looking to see yes. if these words are flawed because yes. you you're making your life decisions based on yeah. these words uh, you absolutely should be looking to determine are they flawed or not. And so right. uh, I think it's a little uh, disingenuous to say that uh, you shouldn't be looking for the flaws in these, because first off, when has the church ever came in and said, these words are flawed, you shouldn't be following them. They right. never will point out when they, when no. they bring up, when they teach a flawed point. Oh, no. And, and they'll never say that that was a flawed point. Right. So how are you supposed to know it was flawed if they never bring it up and never point it out? You have no other choice but to look for it and dig into it and see, is this flawed? Because they're never going to bring it to your attention if it was flawed, and they're never going to disavow it. So you never know no. that it was was that way. So yeah. No, and I, I guarantee if you look on any person over a certain age's bookshelf, you know, and my relatives included, those books are all still there. And they yep. still think... <laughs> that that's what the doctrine of the day is. You're absolutely right. So and, and Deseret yeah. Book goes and pulls them off of their shelf do, and say, we disavow this, but they never tell anybody, don't no. don't follow this teaching anymore. Quietly goes away. They just quietly pull it off the book. So <laughs> like the Chad Daybell books. It, yes. <laughs> from <exactly>. Deseret Book. <laughs> They're just gone. It's gone. It's, it's away in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh not laughing at that. Sorry, I was not laughing. No, no. But it, it it's interesting how he, he makes it just sound like you know, it's it's not your responsibility to uh, to seek anything that might be uh, damaging or anything that's difficult. You shouldn't be looking at it. But it's my life. It's my decision. Right. I it's absolutely my responsibility to look and to determine whether or not it's it's flawed or not. And if it mm -hmm. is flawed, it's absolutely should be my responsibility to tell other people because I was called on a mission to teach this stuff and they told me to teach everybody. So if it was my responsibility to teach people that when I thought it was true, why is it not now my responsibility to share when I think that it's not true? Hmm, an anti-missionary. An that anti is a very interesting idea. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Well, hopefully it's to a different place if I get that's called. right. <laughs> yeah. Really, Indiana. <laughs> if you haven't watched his, if you haven't watched time. Landon's episode <laughs> on his Indiana mission, it's back about two months or so, but yeah, boy, yeah, he's still it. recovering from the trauma. Yes, I don't think I'll ever recover from the trauma of Indiana. <laughs> No offense to our viewers or viewer in Indiana. That's right. <laughs> okay. Asking, and for that matter, reading from a position of doubt or skepticism will not summon a response from heaven. Prove it to me prayers are seldom answered. And if they are, it is usually to the condemnation, even destruction of the one demanding proof. 
Think Korahor and Sherem, for example. Mm. Hmm. So we shouldn't uh, we sh we shouldn't look for proof. Evidently, no. we shouldn't pray for proof. No. We should we should pray from a point of belief. Evidently, um, never never for pr uh, for proof. Uh, in fact, yeah. I think, uh, and, and I think he goes on, let me, let me uh, play the next part of that. I think he goes on and tells us how we should, he just told us how we shouldn't, uh, pray, but I think he goes on here and he tells us how we should. Answers from God in response to earnest inquiries come by the power of the Holy Ghost, speaking to your mind and to your heart, your spiritual sense of learning. Trying to understand the things of God by some way other than the Spirit of God is like trying to understand the flavor of food by listening to it. You're using the wrong sense. If we neglect our spiritual sense of learning and feeling, we will never adequately know God's truth. To me, that's similar to saying uh, you can only see things through your spiritual eyes. Don't you think it's kind of similar to that? Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, he first tells you, don't look for proof because you'll never find it. God will never answer your question when you seek proof. He will only answer you through feelings and through prayers and only when you do it from a starting point of belief. You have to start with belief. And that's the only way God can answer you is if you start with belief. Um, so you already have to believe in order to in order for God to give you the answer. Uh, I think that's kind of uh, I think uh, one of the uh, Terry Mulestein or one of the uh, apologists. Yes. Said, I always start from a place of belief and then try to work backwards from there. Yeah. And that's basically what they're saying is you have to start from a place of belief and, and work from there. So. Uh, yeah, it's not the scientific method. That's for sure. When you have every possibility in mind that it could be that, and then you narrow it down and you use, you know, skepticism and scientific process to arrive at a conclusion instead of starting from a bias and a conclusion at the beginning and then gathering and cherry picking evidence to support that conclusion. That never works. But I guess that's called faith I don't know. and and he's talking to byu students so he's talking to right. young people and he's basically saying you know okay you guys who were raised in the church and you don't have a testimony yet but you should start you should start by believing it and then ask and then you'll find out uh but he really doesn't ever talk to that group who has believed it for a long time and and then they said i want to believe it but i'm finding things as i'm reading that don't that that lead me to doubt the the evidence inside my own belief is causing me to doubt i believe this but everything i'm finding now is con is contradictory to what i've been reading and he never addresses how you're supposed to do that where you are a believer and you started at a point of belief and now you're finding doubt where are you supposed to go with that? He never right. Well, in a way, he that maybe is the Satan working hard against you argument. Don't you think a little bit that that you're finding these things and it seems so logical and plausible and it makes sense, and that just means that means that Satan is working against you because you're such a valiant person and these arguments are so clear and plain that the only thing you can do is ignore them <laughs> because it's obviously a deception. It kind of reminds me, this little section of the talk, how my dad used to say to me, well, if you don't understand or believe, just fake it till you make it. That was the <laughs> thing that he, you know, because I'd say, oh my gosh, I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to go to the church welfare form at 4.30 every Saturday morning, you know, and he'd go, well, that's what we've been called to do. Just fake it till you make it. <laughs> that there was this idea that you could put everything on hold and, you know, from a place of faith or belief or try to convince yourself, you know, faking it. And eventually you'll arrive at belief or just a mind numbing numbness. I don't know. 
<laughs> how come you can't I don't know. disbelief until you make that uh, and sleep that, in instead of that, going to the Exactly. I wish I had that argument when I was growing up. Nope, Dad, I'd rather fake my disbelief and sleep in a little bit. You know, that was that dates me too. I don't think they do the church welfare farm anymore. But boy, I did that almost every weekend of my young life. My goodness. Yep, we did too. Yep. Uh, absolutely. And th those orchards were horrible. Oh, the orchards were worst. Uh, when I was young, we had a an onion farm and we had to go weed that. But that was only a couple times a, a year. But the orchard, oh my gosh, that was yeah. every week from like February yeah. to December. <laughs> yeah, we were cherries and apples. Look, we're on a tangent, everybody, because the rest of it is just too distressing. So now yeah. we're talking about cherries, apples, <laughs> church welfare farms. We, Please comment if you also went to the church welfare <laughs> farm and you still have the scars, both physical and psychological. <laughs> well, let's get back on topic. Then. Okay, back on track. That was a little palate cleanser then. Let's get back to it. And see where he takes us next. Ugh. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize that having perplexing questions that arise from reasons to doubt is not a problem. But please understand, finding answers to these perplexing questions ultimately is not the solution. The solution is a sure and certain foundation whereon if you build, you cannot fall. That foundation is Jesus Christ and his gospel. So that's- Yeah, well, I think that says it. ridiculous statement <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> it basically says, finding answers is not the answer. That's, that's right. what it says. I, I think if there's any, uh, they're basically admitting defeat right here. We don't have the answers, so don't look for the answers because you're not going to get answers. The answer is believe in Jesus Christ and everything else is, is, is going to work out. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't put your faith in answers to any questions. Don't worry about his history because you're not going to get them. Just put your faith in Jesus Christ. And they've basically admitted defeat, in my opinion here, <laughs> from the yeah, church himself. <laughs> wow. But I will say that I, I do know people that operate that way. Oh, yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean? They, they yeah. do. And they have a very strong faith and they are happy. So, I mean, I guess maybe if you can do that and that works for you, that's what you're going to do. But most people are not able to operate that way but i do know some people that do but they really have to like they really have to just focus on the faith part yeah i know i know a lot of people who can do that and and i think it's it's a difference of different types of people there there are people mm -hmm. who are logical people there are people who are thinking people and then there are people who are feeling people and as long yeah. as you go to church and you feel good and you have the feelings that uh that it's good and it's true. You're okay with it. You don't have to have the logical back backing to to say that it's true. But uh, there's also people who are very logical thinkers, and they have to have that. And without that, they can't possibly believe it. But the church very much focuses on you must believe it through the feelings. And if you can't believe it that way, then you you know then then they punish you for it. And that's very unhealthy for those people who are logical thinkers or those people who don't think the same way uh, and to, to make it feel like you are something less than because you don't feel that that way because you have to have the logical thinking. It's just uh, not. And that's certainly not the way a historian should be uh, uh, right. teaching, because a historian is supposed to be following the historical documents, not feelings. Uh, to, to bring history to life. Exactly. No, and, and I've said this before, but that's how I was. I've said I was Pimo from the day I was born, and I was. I'm extraordinarily logical, <laughs> not emotional. People call me a Vulcan, which is probably why I started a... <laughs> a uh a post-mormon star trek fan page called trexmo, trexmo. <laughs> oh my god find it on facebook it's actually kind of entertaining trexmo for you know 
ex-Mormons who are Star Trek fans. Anyway, logical. I digress and are logical, <laughs> but no, that's where it comes from. Logical. So when I was growing up, I did not feel anything or understand. And I felt very confused by people in my own family who were super emotional, who were crying over spiritual things. I was scared of that because I did not understand emotional outbursts. I didn't feel anything like that. And I just kept thinking about things. And even as a child, it, certain things didn't add up and didn't make sense. So it was a not a great place to be in because you're right. I was sort of a second class citizen and I had to pretend that I did understand, you know, what was happening. I had to pretend to be more emotional when I didn't feel it. I don't know if any of our viewers can relate to that, but yeah, I was very much, you know, a square peg in a round hole when it came to um, everything being based on feelings, because that is not how I operated. So I agree absolutely with what you said, Landon. But but the church needs to stop pretending to be scholarly then if they're not going to mm. be scholarly, because if they're going to pretend to be scholars and they're going to pretend to have a university that actually investigates this and does scholarly writings, then they need to be truthful with their scholarly writings and 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 be accurate with what they say. And that's what we're not seeing. And then they act like when people don't believe what they say, that there's something wrong with them or that they're somehow vindictive and they're not vindictive. They're simply mm -hmm. saying your scholarship doesn't add up. It doesn't yeah. add up. It doesn't make sense. It's not the truth. You need to be truthful with what you're saying with your academics and with your scholarship. And if you present scholarship that stands up to peer review by other people right. who are not of your faith, then we will embrace it. But exactly. until you do that, we're not going to embrace it because it doesn't stand up. And and that's yeah. what the, a historian should be saying as well, is until we can put stuff out that stands up to academic peer review by other scholars, I shouldn't be putting stuff out as academic scholarship or historical facts. And and that's exactly what the church has done that has destroyed their reputation as historians, is they've put out historical narratives that just don't stand up to any right. test of time Peer review and now they're out there yeah. trying to tell you well just ignore all of that it's not important yeah. we have a whole church <laughs> history department but none of it's important it's yeah, how you that. feel that's important <laughs> it's how you feel because yep your feelings are a lot more easy to manipulate than then, you know rational cognitive thought in the past so, we've ah. been able to manipulate the history but now we can't so let's just go with the feelings so now just you gotta feel it that's right so um and then he ended uh, we're not going to show the clip but he ended on a story the story of jane manning do you remember that story landon did you yes. listen to the end there yeah so basically he he told the story and he was very emotional about it of jane manning if you're not familiar and with who this is, it's an African-American um, free woman who joined the church in, I believe she was a free woman. I believe I, I read that that was the case in one of the things I read. Yeah, so I, I hope so. I'm not getting that wrong. I believe so. Um, she joined the church in Connecticut and she made her way um, to, was it Nauvoo or Kirkland? I can't I remember, but she lived, yeah, because she lived in the mansion house. That's right. With Joseph Smith and Emma. And she became a beloved member of the family. There's even a movie I think called Jane and Emma, um, about that era. And, um, and several of the sources that we read, it said that Joseph actually approached her about being adopted or sealed into their family, um, possibly as a child sealing something. It wasn't clear. Um, Jane said no at that time. Later in life, um, she had second thoughts about that because she understood that she needed that for salvation. So, but the way that the story was told here, it was a little different. Landon, do you want to <laughs> do you want to pick it up there? Well, she basically uh, he tells it as a as a story of faithfulness that mm -hmm. despite being an African American woman who was denied over and over, uh, she begged to be uh, able to be endowed and to be sealed. Yes. Uh, five different prophets uh, refused uh, her to have a ceiling. And he basically, you know, this, I guess the moral of the story was, despite five prophets being wrong and, and erring as humans, uh, she, in her writings, said what great men they were. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to overlook the human error and and participate in the gospel and find joy in the gospel despite the human error of the prophets which right. as should we all <laughs> as as we all should we should all ignore the human errors of of the prophets uh, and and look for the joy in the gospel 
I right. I guess I didn't see it quite that way. <laughs> I was going Well, that's because that is not completely accurate. I mean, that is part of the story. She did come to understand that she needed an endowment and she very much wanted that and she did approach five different prophets throughout the decades for that. Finally, in 1894, they came up with a sort of a workaround, I guess they would call it, where they said that she could be sealed as a basically a servant to Joseph Smith's family, or a servitor is what the actual um, words to the temple ceremony, the sealing ceremony, I read that. Now, of course, she couldn't go into the temple, so a white woman went into the temple as proxy and was sealed to someone as proxy to Joseph Smith, because, of course, this was decades after his death. And, you know, the ceremony was just, do you promise to be a servitor to Joseph and his family and be in obedience to him? You know, it was along those lines, and then they agreed, and so she was sealed as a servant to the family. Well, after a little while, she realized that wasn't exactly what she wanted. So for the next 10 years of her life, she continued to petition prophets and church leaders and say, I really want my endowment because she knew what that meant. She could not be in the celestial kingdom without that. And I hadn't had that thought until today, until I was reading up on it a little bit. But on her deathbed, when she died, she didn't believe that she had what she needed to get where she wanted to go. And that's absolutely tragic. She had tried so hard. She fought so hard and she never did achieve it. She didn't. Of course, in the year 1979, now that's an interesting and pivotal year, right? Uh, by proxy, she was sealed. She was sealed to um, her first husband. I don't believe she was sealed to her second one yet. She was sealed to her children possibly her, anyway, her, her regular sealing took place and her endowment took place in 1979. So you should all be able to figure out why that was able to happen that year. And somebody jumped on that right away. So, but to me, you know, and the story was told in this talk in a very emotional way, um, you know, of someone who kept the faith and stood firm despite being rebutted and refuted by church leaders, you know, for what she desperately wanted, what all of us want out of the church, right? We want the endowment and to be in the celestial kingdom with your family and heavenly father forever. So anyway, it was interesting. Well, he, he called her he, during the, the, the whole time as he, he said uh, that she was his hero and that yeah. she he wished that he could be like her and have right. that kind of faith. And I was like, yeah, well, First off, she doubted what the prophets yes. were telling her because she kept yep. petitioning them that she kept could going be back. endowed. After yep. they did the ceiling, she said, well, that's not enough. I need that's, more and yeah. petitioned five different yep. prophets for it. So she yep. clearly didn't believe that what she was getting was what she needed. She doubted what she was getting was enough to get her where she needed to go. And she continued to question. And the yep. fact that it was 1979 when she finally was able to be sealed after the fact um, is a testament of those people who were pushing the church from the outside and 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 uh, putting the pressure on the church to allow the blacks to uh, obtain the priesthood uh, was people from the outside pressuring right. to, to make that happen. So it's a it's a perfect case of showing that people can make a difference when they question the prophets, when they question the policies, and when they push for change. Yeah. And so if he wants to be like her, he needs to question when he sees something that's not right, not just ignore it and, and continue on. It was the continuous questioning of the practice that eventually led to the change. Um, and he's not willing to do that himself. And yet he calls that his hero and, and puts her up as the person that we all should should be like, because he, in his opinion, just sat back and, and let it happen to her and, and took no yeah. action. So, that, so in reality, I believe she's our hero. I believe <laughs> so she never well. stopped pushing. She never stopped questioning to the very end of her life. She demanded what she knew should be hers. So exactly. there's the she takeaway for the change. Yep. She is our hero. That's exactly right. So, 
Well, I think we've come to the end of it. Um, do you think we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish? We just kind of wanted to take a look at it. I mean, like I said, everybody, please just go listen to it. We've only shown you a few parts of it, but there were a lot of new ways to think about things that we hadn't really seen before. So we thought we'd dissect those a little bit um, just for our viewers. And, and you know, please comment and tell us what you think. What are your takeaways from this? Because there was a lot to unpack in it. Don't you feel, Landon? Oh, yeah. He he was a good speaker. He's a, he's he was a, a great speaker, speaker yeah. and he had some good jokes in there at the beginning uh I, you know it was a it, it had a lot of new ideas in it that i hadn't heard i just didn't think that they held up to scrutiny i think it was kind of an end run around the doctrines that we all grew up on that you know hey none of this stuff matters it is in the end what i learned just believe in jesus christ and ignore all the other stuff uh and i just can't i, I can't hold on to that but i can understand why they're saying what they're saying because they just yes. don't have answers Yep, that's exactly right. It's pretty obvious why that kind of talk is being given. And I think we'll see more like this where they just go right at it. Absolutely right at it. So, yep. and that will work for a lot of people for a certain amount of time, I think. So very interesting. Well, uh, I hope everybody, I don't, I don't want to say the word enjoyed. I don't think anyone enjoyed it, but maybe learned something <laughs> from it. Or, yep, I don't know, maybe you, from it. maybe you did enjoy it. I don't know. You got to see Landon go on a couple rants. We don't <laughs> see that. He's often very calm on the, on Mormonish, but he, yeah, he definitely, we got him going tonight with this for sure. We've kind of spent the afternoon with this, just dissecting it. So it's been interesting. So anyway, uh, like, and subscribe. Please comment. Tell us what you thought of the talk. Tell us what you thought of some of our observations. What are your observations? We would absolutely love feedback on this talk and what you think it means. Um, don't forget to hit the notification bell to get notified when there are new episodes of Mormonish. And we will see you next time. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.